Just a note on accessibility, you can find a music-free version of this episode on the blog post for the episode at jetpack.zoob.net or jetpack.zoob.net. You can also find transcripts for some of the other episodes. It's also worth noting that while this episode deals with a family show, it is more geared towards an adult audience than towards children. This episode is sponsored by Atomic Dew, the glowing green gamer fuel from Vertical Corp. Atomic Dew is collected from the Yucca Mountain. Dew collected from a mountain? That reminds me of something. I don't know what you're talking about. Atomic Dew is a legally distinct soft drink. What's a soft drink? Pop. Oh, we call it soda in Florida. Uh huh. Americans. I lost my train of thought here. Uh, oh yes. Collected from Yucca Mountain. Some call it waste, but we say reuse and recycle. Atomic Dew has explosive flavor and energy. This month we've added extra colors to the label, proof of our deep commitment to equality. So score a point against homophobia by giving up your hard-earned cash. Pink, green, we graciously accept all dollars equally. Those of you in Timeline A can find Atomic Dew at your nearest convenience store. Timelines B through Z will have to wait. If you're in the DC universe, try our novelty Snyder brand gamer fuel. Sucked dry of all colour, energy and taste. Spoiler warning for Steven Universe, Steven Universe the movie, and Steven Universe Future. Bona Tavada, friends of Dorothy, and welcome to Where's My Jetpack, a politics and pop culture podcast with gay and trans leanings. It's Pride Month, and at this podcast, we're all about gay pride, not to mention gay lust, gay gluttony, and gay wrath. This is the first of our four Pride Month episodes. I'm Annie White, on the line to my sinfully sexy co-host, Derek Johnson. Thank you, Ani, and to all our listeners, happy Pride. For Pride Episode 1, we're discussing the gloriously queer animated series Steven Universe with superfan Ivy. We actually went overboard in our passion for Steven Universe and recorded three hours of material, so we're splitting this first Pride Month episode into two parts released in the first two weeks of Pride Month, and then the remaining two episodes over Pride Month will be one on Javi Guillen, the plus-size Latino gay actor, and one queer ultra-left slogan sampler. These will be going out each Saturday of the month, but first some recs. Ani? Yeah, I'm going to recommend the old Leslie Feinberg book, Transgender Warriors, which offers an excellent historical overview of the history of gender diversity and the roots of transphobia. I brought it as a Christmas present for my dad, and the main thing he took from it is that assigning a single fixed name through documentation is a relatively recent thing. Uh, whereas various societies have involved people choosing their name at a certain point in life. And that sort of helped him adjust to my choosing a na- new name. 
Uh, and for those of us already familiar with Trans 101, the book offers a sophisticated communist account of gendered history, updating the work of Engels and Kolontai on the family and private property. So Transgender Warriors is, is an essential work. And for a somewhat different, more contemporary take on trans history, YouTuber Mia Mulder's video essay, Transphobia, A Short History, is worth a watch. Mulder's explanation of the origins of transphobia is a little different from Feinberg's, but they're both worth a look and complimentary, I think. Yeah, Mia Mulder's... uh video is very good. I was also going to recommend it. Uh, Video maker Rowan Ellis makes a lot of very good content on queer coding and queer baiting, especially a recent video, Gay Superheroes, Queer Baiting in Camp, which is very good. I recommend that one. Uh, She also did a great video on why is Dungeons and Dragons so popular with LGBT nerds. And on similar queer coding, queer baiting, and burying your gays tropes, I also recommend Council of Geeks. I also wreck Jesse Gender's videos on Star Trek and trans representation. Yeah, I thought the Trill episode of Discovery Season 3 was the highlight of the season, and her review of that was great. And for Steven Universe, I'm obviously... Wrecking Ivy's podcast, Not So Giant Women, a podcast about Steven Universe with Ivy and Daria. It's a deep dive discussion podcast of Steven Universe with one seasoned fan and one complete newcomer. And it's it's a, it's a very good format because uh, Daria hasn't seen any of the episodes up to that point. So they're either watching them as they go and reviewing them. Or you know, seeing you know how how a newbie is is experiencing these episodes uh, from the from the point of view of somebody who's who's probably watched these a lot, and it's just it's always very cool to find the the uh, videos of people on YouTube of uh, people discovering Steven Universe and watching it episodes for the first time. That is, is that is just a phenomenon of its own. Uh, I'm also going to recommend a couple of docos on LGBT representation in cinema. So firstly, an older one on gay representation called The Celluloid Closet, which was based on a book. And secondly, a newer one on trans representation called Disclosure, which features Laverne Cox, among others, and it's available on Netflix. Uh, also, a good video game for trans representation is Tell Me Why, a kind of supernatural small-town murder mystery by the producers of Life is Strange. Tell Me Why has a trans lead, and they consulted with GLAD or the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, to get the representation right. On a technical level, it's pretty good with beautiful cinematography and mechanics that will likely work for you if you like story-based games like Life is Strange, uh, but will annoy you if that's not your sort of thing. 
we did a playthrough of Tell Me Why on our YouTube last year, and I've also got a piece about it coming in Australian sci-fi fantasy journal Aurealis for their June issue, and the game is available on Xbox and PC. And now for your meat space, Rex. Respect chosen pronouns and names. Kill the gender cop in your head. And to quote Shirley Manson, try to comprehend that which you'll never comprehend. Now, before we get to the interview, enjoy our interviewee Ivy's ukulele cover of Steven Universe song, Giant Woman. All I want to do is see you turn into a giant woman, a giant woman. All I want to be is someone who gets to see a giant woman. All I want to do is help you turn into a giant woman, a giant woman. All I want to be is someone who gets to see a giant woman. even like being together and if you don't it won't be forever but if it were me i'd really want to be a giant woman a giant woman all i want to do is see you turn into a giant woman all right we're interviewing ivy decker on the queer themes of steven universe ivy is a queer activist author and cartoon nerd from florida she is a well-known voice in the asexual community with content contributed through media interviews educational videos on youtube articles and a book called the invisible orientation published in uh, 2014. Her contributions to the Steven Universe fandom includes analysis, cosplay, music covers, recipes, merchandise collections, fan art and fan comics, and reviews of all the tie-in media, plus a discussion podcast called Not So Giant Women. Welcome to the show, Ivy. (laughs) Thanks. All right, we had you on uh, the old podcast uh, I did called The Authority Smashing Hour uh, to talk about asexuality with uh, you and uh, the head of AVEN, and uh, that became a very popular episode of ours. That's probably one of our highest uh, rated episodes as far as replays. Cool. Uh, so uh, before we get on to Steven Universe, can you talk about your work on asexual rights? Yeah, uh, that is my contribution to kind of queer activism in general, although, of course, I support all the other stripes of the rainbow. But uh, yeah, I'm an asexuality activist, and my favorite kind of contribution is to publish annoyingly long essays and whatnot. So uh, creating a book from some of those annoyingly long essays was a natural step, I think. But uh, before I decided to write a book about asexuality, I did a lot of media interviews and I did blogs and I did YouTube videos where I educate about asexuality. And it all kind of started back in the 90s when I would post on just my personal rants page. People would respond to that one um, kind of me doing it in a way that I had not really heard before. So I realized people needed 
this message and that I needed to say more about it, put more content out there. And it just kind of grew from there. Um, I did not initially join uh, AVEN, which is where David J. uh decided to make his start with asexuality activism. Uh, I didn't join that place until like, I don't know, 10 years after it started existing, but uh, it kind of, my activities dovetailed with a lot of his. And, uh, you know, we've worked together on quite a few projects since then. Um, And I've been in an asexuality related documentary and, uh, you know, been on some some interviews on podcasts and radio and all of that stuff. But uh, primarily, I think um, it's the YouTube videos that got a lot of the attention where I read my hate mail and, you know, (laughs) deal with some of these detractors and, you know, people who say the kind of things that are probably being said to a lot of asexual people who are not activists. And so, you know, I get to walk them through some possible responses and some reasons why those people are out of their lane when they challenge us that way. And that's kind of what I do. Uh, perhaps before we get on to the Steven Universe uh, part, can you maybe talk about what are the sort of the main challenges uh, facing uh, the asexual community? Oh, sure. Well, um, we are like any other marginalized sexual orientation in that straight people think that we're weird and sometimes think that we are a threat to the traditional family or that... Uh, our orientation could only be a function of trauma or mental illness. And so even though obviously we could be traumatized or mentally ill as well, it is not automatically a consequence um, of our orientation that that means we're one of those things. So um, we, uh, we get to deal with that from straight people and from mainstream media, we get to be kind of left out of the conversation a lot, which is why some people call asexuality the invisible orientation. But then, uh, unfortunately, sometimes within queer circles, we will also get some pushback where, you know, kind of similar to maybe bisexual or pansexual people where some people will say, you're not experiencing the same kind of, uh, homophobia or transphobia, unless you were also one of these other identities that we do accept. So that unfortunately, that that response is out there. It does exist within our communities. I have thankfully not encountered it very often, uh, at least especially in, in person, in organization. It's a lot of times it's just kind of loud people online. But, uh, you know, there are some people within the uh, within the larger LGBTQ plus communities that say asexual people should not be here, we're not queer enough, that sort of thing. Um, so unfortunately, there is sometimes a perception that we are kind of like we're straight light, you know, <laughs> and we're not. <laughs> just just ask straight people. <laughs> so, um, but along the lines of traditionally understood institutional oppression. Some of it looks different for us, but some of it can still manifest in terms of, say, uh, some some states in the United States still have consummation laws, which asexual people are not the only ones 
that that can affect, but it does disproportionately affect us. And uh, sometimes in situations with immigration, like if you were to have an international marriage, uh, sometimes if your marriage would be challenged, they would assume that sex is an automatic part of a married life and that if you are not having sex, then that makes your relationship suspicious. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's been anecdotal references to people who are asexual trying to adopt children and being denied because why would you be married if you're asexual, et cetera. Um, and I think one of the biggest problems is in, in mental health and in relationship counseling, because there is this under, understanding that if you are a healthy person, you are attracted sexually to other people. And there's always going to be this push to make you into that in the interest of making you supposedly healthy. So uh, we, we do unfortunately still have some mental health practitioners who don't understand this aspect of human sexuality and haven't updated themselves on the latest uh, DSM-5 stuff that, that is in in the uh, in the manual saying that we do not qualify as a mental illness asexuality is a, a legitimate sexual orientation so um it's unfortunate that sometimes when we try to get help from professionals they will they will act like anyone else so that happens Thanks. Um, and on to our main topic. Uh, can you just to start with summarize the basic plot of Steven Universe? Well, the idea behind Steven Universe is that Steven, surname Universe, is a child who is a hybrid. He had a human father and what's called a gem for a mother who gave up her physical form to bring him into the world. They are unclear about what exactly that means for a good long time. So Stephen is half human, half gem, and he is being watched over by three sort of superhero types who were his mother's associates, Garnet, Amethyst, and Pearl, who are all gems. And they have presented as kind of magical weapons that they can pull out of their gemstones. They're trying to train him to be kind of a full member of the crystal gems, which is their, um, their sort of superhero team name, uh, which we later find out is more like a, more like a social movement. Um, and uh, at least for the first uh, half of the first season and, somewhat beyond. It's mostly sort of a monster of the week kind of feeling where Steven is trying to learn how to control his powers and fight these monsters that attack them that are gemstone based as well and protect the city. It's kind of a very straightforward, uh, you know, protect people and beat up bad guys kind of um, idea at first. But it very quickly starts to develop into a lot more than that where uh, Stephen has to figure out his relationship with each of the each of each of his caregivers, with his dad, with uh, other humans like his best friend Connie, um, and figure out what does it mean that he is the child of a gem, who the bad guys from the gem homeworld think that he is his mother and are always talking to him like he is his mother. So there's a lot of identity stuff that's associated with that. 
and then bigger and bigger problems because it turns out the bad guys from space are not done with Earth. So they uh, they have to figure out how to how to protect the Earth from uh, forces out in space that may still be trying to uh, destroy the planet, um, which they did try to do thousands of years ago initially when Stephen's mother and her group stopped them, turned against their own kind and stopped them. And it kind of becomes um, – it becomes a lot of things. It becomes action oriented to some degree, but also gets deeper into the identity issues that Steven has as both kind of a half human, half gem, and also trying to figure out like who he is as a person because he keeps being more and more associated with who his mother was. Yeah, I find it I find it very cool that it's like kind of epic and subtle at the same time. Yes. That is really one of its charms, I think, is that at the beginning, because a lot of people complain about the beginning. They're like, oh, it's a silly kids show. And they'll they'll misinterpret the whole beginning as something that's unnecessary or skippable or when does this show get good? And I really feel like you have to you have to pay attention to the beginning, to the building of it, because it helps you understand what he's protecting and why. And um, how important it all is for for him to have these human relationships as well as these big earth shaking plots. Yeah, that really drew me in because I, I really enjoyed the first season as uh, things really kind of felt like a coming of age story yes. about a kid descended from this great heroic leader kind of during this lazy summer, you know, as, you know, mm-hmm. as we've been discussing, has these sci-fi fantasy world building unfolds. And, it, yeah. you know, it really reminded me of uh, living in Hawaii a- as a child. And I, for the longest time, I was like trying to figure out what coast they were on. And uh, I, I really loved the look of the show, uh, especially the colors in the background of this kind of Super Nintendo, Yoshi's Island-influenced color schemes. And uh, another thing, at first, you know, you you kind of think, well, these are simplistic, you know, cartoon network designs or something, you know, and and you don't realize that it's going to be like an action show or it has that potential hidden inside it. And, you know, you have these uh, simplified character designs that actually allow for complicated Sailor Moon or Dragon Ball Z level fights mm-hmm. and uh, when, when they can uh, really get going and allows the animators kind of the uh, ability the flexibility to do that and yes. I, I think ironically you know the interesting thing about the show is that most of the conflicts are ultimately solved non-violently for an action show and they kill a uh, few if any I uh, can't really think of any uh, enemies they've killed on the show and uh, you also gradually see how uh, different their history is from ours. As you mentioned, uh, you know, there's a war thousands of years ago uh, on Earth. And, you know, I initially thought the show was like post-apocalyptic, kind of like the first Mad Max when things were starting to collapse or post-collapse, especially with like Florida being an island and there only being 39 states. It's funny because you don't really know, especially, I mean, in the second episode, Laser Light Cannon, there's a bit where uh, Steven is saying, this is my favorite time of day when the second sun gets bigger and bigger in the sky. And you're like, do they have a second sun? They don't. But 
um, <laughs> you're realizing like right away, you don't actually know what's what's going on. He's going to get fry bits with this purple person next to him. Amethyst is purple. And, you know, I mean, what is going on? How come uh, these these aliens or whatever they are, because they take a long time to really tell you they're even aliens, um, uh, you don't know what they are. You don't know how they got there. You don't know how aware the rest of the world is of what they're doing. And yeah, that's a question I have watching the show is like the other characters see these people with different yep. rainbow colored skins, skin tones and hair and everything. And they think that they're aliens and they just got used to it. Or what do they think of this? The funny thing is that they have this character, Ronaldo, who is a giant conspiracy theorist, and he's always trying to find secret meanings and look into these conspiracies and yet he doesn't seem particularly interested in the fact that he's neighbors with aliens yeah and he's still looking for the snake people he's looking for snake people but he's got aliens living next door to him and it's not that he doesn't realize that they have superpowers and fight fight monsters and stuff he he notices that but i guess it's just been always been part of his life (laughs) yeah i kind of feel like uh, do they feel like they're in the superhero genre and don't notice or you know so that they they figure oh okay these are just like superpowered individuals or mutants or or something or they're aliens yeah you know it's just like eh, it's just not mentioned you know (laughs) and and nobody has an issue and i i kind of think that's actually a cool way of playing it it's uh, very that, interesting yeah there's yeah. never any there's never any feeling like oh these guys are um s- secret superheroes that they have mm. to hide because that kind of gets obnoxious to me i don't know how y'all feel about those kinds of things but i tend to get tired of that conceit you know <laughs> that we have to at all costs for some reason make sure the neighbors don't find out we're, we're magic or whatever <laughs> like, no. well for me i i'm a big believer in the the uh the secret identity for superheroes, depending on what level of power you have. (laughs) So you don't know, everybody knows your address. (laughs) Secret identity is like, it's, it can be a thing. It can be very interesting, but it also seems like there's so many, especially like stuff for young people where Mm -hmm. there's a lot of unnecessary conflict over. They can't find out I'm secretly Hannah Montana or whatever. Yeah. I thought Buffy was a was a good way of handling it of of like having to balance these these two parts of your life, but mm-hmm. like you didn't have to like have a disguise or anything, you know. And I, I kind of mm-hmm. feel like shows post Buffy, like all these really handle that kind of like you have your home life and your school life, and then you have your fighting monsters life, you know. Right. And now Stephen doesn't go to school. Yeah, that's another funny thing that doesn't really... Well, see, I always figured that it's summer. So for after a while, it takes me a while to figure out, huh, he hasn't been going to school this whole time. <laughs> right, it's not always summer. It's, it's definitely uh, like you, you get this feeling like because it's in a sort of tourist town mm-hmm. that it's always summer, but it definitely isn't always summer, especially when they have whole episodes about winter. So, uh, yeah. and then they have this whole episode where Steven finds out what school is. Yeah. I didn't even think they had school or think about that. Or I didn't even think they had police until they got pulled over for driving that right. one time. Or outside of beach city. I just feel like they, they just wouldn't know what to do if, if police were there, they would probably just stop being police very quickly because, um, 
there it's over their head mm-hmm. <laughs> there's too much going on there but when they were outside the city they got they did get pulled over and uh, Steven Universe has won quite a few awards on LGBTQ and gender representation and diversity at the time it has been on. Mm-hmm. And the series won a GLAAD Media Award for Outstanding Kids and Family Program in 2019, becoming the first animated series to win the award. Yeah. How does the series uniquely represent queerness and gender diversity as a cartoon? <laughs> I think we are seeing more incidental queerness these days. Um, And I have, I have definitely been saying like for a long time that when you want to have queer content in any kind of media, you need some shows and, you know, various media, you need some of the stories to be sort of issue books or issue shows where it's about this and it's realistic and all of that. But then there's this other stripe, which I guess Steven Universe falls into, where it's very incidental and it's just part of the story. It's shown as a normal, natural part of everything that's going on. It's not really ever spotlighted or even named. Nobody ever says gay. No one ever says lesbian. Um I guess the closest that anybody gets to saying those things is like an implied partner um, with a couple of the references to language that they use to refer to. Somebody says my partner. There's a couple of different places where somebody is referred to as someone's partner um, rather than wife or husband. And those words are used too. Um, But with the gems, it is a little strange because you you find out over time that they are they all use she her pronouns and there don't seem to be any that use he him except for Stephen and you know he's a hybrid so it's a little strange and you basically are only ever shown um, gem characters that use she her unless they are uh blending together as a fusion which i guess we will probably talk about later but um it seems to be a one a one gender race the gems are one gender race and they're they're uh, they're not women though they're uh Rebecca Sugar has talked about that uh, the as the creator and as a non-binary woman herself, she feels that the the gems are kind of they're also non-binary and don't think of themselves as women, but they don't really mm. care if people on Earth call them or think of them that way because it just doesn't make any sense to them. It doesn't bother them that that's how they are seen, um, and with all these different presentations of traditional and less traditional uh, female forms. It's just kind of like, it is whatever you look like. That's, that's still going to be a she, her pronoun. And it doesn't mean the same thing that it does for us, for humans Mm -hmm. on earth who have a binary gender uh, presentation uh, in so much of our society. Um, You know, which I'm glad that that is being challenged now. But uh, anyway, um, so some people object to saying that gems who have relationships with other gems are lesbian, that they would say that's not a lesbian because they're not women. But it's coded that way. 
And it's definitely created so that people who are women who love women or anybody who is uh, ladyish, who loves anyone who is ladyish, is going to see themselves in those. It's designed that way so that they can uh, they can see someone like themselves. It's not an accident. It's not mm-hmm. like this isn't gay because they're rocks. That's not yeah. what they're doing because it is it is gay. <laughs> and aren't they wouldn't they be considered a, a gender just as many just as often with some yes. of them? Because I understand yeah, shipping been- gets troubling too because like isn't somebody like uh, Peridot like asexual or something? Oh yeah, I was, I was just gonna say uh, I think this is quite a common issue actually with sci-fi. I mean, with Doctor Who, for example, you had the the Doctor recently regenerating obviously into a woman. And like you, uh, you can uh, link that with um, you know human gender diversity and, and transness and transition, but it's also obviously a different thing because it's an entire society where you know everyone in that society uh, can regenerate into into another form, and it's 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 not like uh, trans people are like sub, su- su- a subset of that society. It's just that anyone yes. in that society can like. Um, can sort of transition from one gender to another as just a normal part of their life cycle. And I feel like you just have to treat it as something that works on both levels. You know, it's it's both, you know, a sci-fi show depicting a different kind of society, but then also it has these resonances with human society and there's no point in, and it's not helpful to, to sort of deny that or to say people shouldn't be able to find representation in that, you know, just because the gems don't directly map onto our understanding of of gender or sexuality, it doesn't mean you can't find some resonance with, for you know, for example, you know, gay relationships. But, yeah, and that's yes. just how sci-fi always works. But, yeah. I, I, I agree. It's it's kind of dangerous to, to say, well, well, no, no. No, it's not. It's totally not gay, guys, because they're they're non-binary. Because you're supposed to see that as as both. It can be both or either. It is meant to speak to people who are um, who are able to see themselves in these characters. And so, you you can't say like. I don't want non-binary people to take this away from lesbians. And you can't say, I don't want lesbians to take this away from non-binary people because it's, it's both, it's all, and it's also science fiction. And, you know, even Mm -hmm. though, um, as mentioned, there's a character Peridot who has been, uh, mentioned by one of the storyboarders as being an asexual and aromantic character. Um, and that, storyboard person was also an asexual and aromantic person. So, you know, she was kind of wanting to uh, define that and clarify that as a person who finds it very important to have that relation, have that relationship with media to be able to see someone like herself. Um, But it also just, we're also dealing with a whole race that doesn't have an, have a use for sex. So Mm -hmm. it's not the same as a human being asexual. And it's not, it's not the same as uh, some of the, the human relationships that we would have. Um, and I think it's, I think it's kind of important to say as a, 
as a nerd, I, <laughs> I I want I want people like me in my science fiction. I absolutely want to read about asexual aliens and asexual robots and whatnot. But it it can possibly become problematic if that's all we get. If every time we see an asexual or aromantic person, mm. it's it's um, a consequence of them not being human, and so we need both. We need both of those things, but I'll take it, you know, I'll take it in, in this representation. Um, it's, it's still good. It's, it's still important to have, even though, uh, at least in the case of the gems, it's technically not human beings and they don't really have a concept of what being a lesbian is. They have, they have different ideas of why the types of relationships that they do have are forbidden also that are good, um, representations, I guess. Like, I mean, some of them, some of the main characters have same sex relationships, but them being same sex relationships is not what is, uh, radical about them. Yeah. And, and I think that that's actually even more radical for a show and that, that you're, especially for kids that, but especially in our society that you're showing that you're having, it, it's like love that's not based in having to reproduce or even the need for physical sexuality. Right. Their society is very, classist it's like mm-hmm. they are they have this they're born with a purpose so well they're not really born the uh, gem characters for anyone who is listening who doesn't know how they work it's you know they they pop out of the ground like a gemstone <laughs> and um it's the 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 they they each have an actual gemstone somewhere on their body that is the source of their life and their body is basically a projection, but it will always generally look a certain way uh, depending on their gem type. So uh, there are certain ones that are, that are made specifically to do certain jobs and they're not supposed to want to do anything else. They're not ever supposed to step out of side of those things. And when they do, that is when they are challenged, especially if they want to have a relationship romantically between two different gems who, you know, maybe one is supposed to serve the other, like when one of the main romantic couples of the show, where uh, one of them is a bodyguard and one of them is an aristocrat and they fall in love. So, and they're gay. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. And what do you, what do you think the uh, classification is for uh, fusions like uh, Stefani? Uh, was that argued to be uh, intersex non-binary? So if we're going to talk about fusion here, um, so like uh, this ability that the the gem characters have to put their their, their bodies and minds together to create a whole third person. It's like, it's not like a gestalt entity, but it's something that they can do 
where they become a whole different person. And there was some doubt at the beginning of the show as to whether Steven would be able to do this because he has an organic body that is not made of light. <laughs> so, but he finds that he can do it. And the first person that he fuses with is his best friend, Connie, who is human. So they become this non-binary character named Stevani. And Stefani is uses they them pronouns, and Stefani has been referred to outside the show and in official merchandise and whatnot as being both intersex and non-binary. So um, this is cool uh, by some standards, but it it has also been referenced even even by some people who uh you know maybe people who are intersex i've seen some people say you know i love having a mainstream intersex character but at the same time um seeing it in this scientific science fiction context makes it uh a little bit hairy because they are literally a boy and a girl smushed together. And that's not what intersex is in real life. And it's also temporary for them because they don't live as that fusion. So their problems as an intersex person would not be the enduring issues that a real life intersex person would have. Um, Seeing this as kind of a consequence of a Mm -hmm. magical process that cannot occur in real life makes it more likely that people will see it as possible only as a magical concept and not extend that to an understanding that will encompass real intersex people. Although it does open doors to those conversations and it does Mm. create contexts for these understandings of how a person like that might function in society. But yeah, it's, um, I wrote some essays about this uh, some time back where be- mm. before we had any human characters who used they, them pronouns, which we did get much later in the show. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that this is great that we have this, but it is it is frustrating that so far up to this point, the only characters that we had that used they, them were fusions, were literally more than one person. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. So I'm glad. I, I'm glad, first of all, that they did end up having a non-binary, a non-binary person much later in the show. And I'm also glad that um, this was done by a non-binary person because uh, at least you know that it's, it certainly wasn't some kind of like, hey, look how cool I am. Look how woke I am because I'm going to say that this is my intersex and non-binary representation, but I'm not you know, I'm going to, I'm still going to make it, make the only representation I have of it as a um, magical concept that can't happen to real people. Yeah. Do you have any uh, further thoughts on fusion or a favorite fusion? Well, hands down, my favorite fusion is Garnet. (laughs) Um, She's also my favorite character, but weirdly enough, uh, a lot, not, not a lot of that has to do with her being a fusion relationship. So uh, that's mostly just stuff that I relate to about Garnet um, being, being a leader and being um, kind of having to depend on herself for her emotional resolutions. But um, cause I've been in that position for a lot of my life, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, 
So fusion, though, is a really interesting concept. Um, Everybody who watches Steven Universe really, you know, gets excited about new fusions and the idea of uh, it's, you know, it's not the same as, say, watching Dragon Ball Z, where I don't watch that show, but I know that fusion exists in Dragon Ball Z. Everybody makes references to it, that they're blending together, but they're still they're speaking with two voices. They're they're. I guess they're called by names that are just blendings of the names, which is kind of what happened to Savani. But uh, when the gems who are not humans will blend together, they get a whole new gemstone name and they have a new body and they have a new voice and they become a whole different person who is not an individual, but still is kind of an individual. And that is really interesting. It's kind of cool to think about. Um, they they did um, talk a little bit about this with uh, in response to fan questions where um, it's not like they have all of the components' memories or anything. They have what they would share with each other. So they're a walking, living, thinking relationship, which is a really neat idea. That's pretty interesting. Think of it that way, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. I mean, they're not... They're not like, I mean, they, they develop a whole different consciousness, I guess. And in some of the other, some of the tie-in books, they've gone into this a little tiny bit more where, um, one of the earliest books that was released, I believe in 2015 called the, uh, called guide to the crystal gems. Steven talks a little bit about how he can fuse and that he's only ever fused with Connie. And he re- described it as um, it's kind of like you're you disappear, but you're still sort of there. Garnet is like probably the most explicit exploration of that. I mean, if you look at her song "Stronger, Stronger Than You," that's yes. very much explicitly about you know about a relationship. But then also, you know, you have lines in it like "I am a conversation." So like Garnet as 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 a character is like. Yeah, is as you say a walking a walking relationship, mm-hmm. uh, and I know I understand there were some people who are critical of uh, of the character being perceived as as codependent. So I think there was a deliberate choice to have them separate for a while and then decide again that they wanted to get married, kind of to address that. Uh, but yeah, I think I th- that that is an, an interesting element of it. That uh, yeah, that they are it's a walking a walking relationship and. Um, yeah, uh, it's yeah, hence uh, the oh, dance. Yeah, yeah. Mm, you dancing know. to to start it off. Yeah, right yeah. to get themselves in kind of doing the same the same physical um, movements. Well, not necessarily the same yeah. but to get on each other's vibe and <laughs> you know whatever. Yeah, I thought of them as gestalt uh, beings or entities at, at first. In a way, this it can really. Become- it can become like mm. that sometimes, I think, when they're a little less in sync, because we've definitely seen, say, Stevani talking to themselves, like, th- sort of like two voices, and not really two voices, but like it's Stevani's voice, but you can tell that Connie is talking to Steven, but they're still all... Which uh, one's the dominant uh, personality or whatever. Yeah, it's it's like, I think I feel like because especially since they're kind of an inexperienced fusion at least that you would you would generally see that when they're starting to feel uh like they're maybe separating or like they're pulling apart from each other they're less in sync and we've even seen garnet do that in extreme crisis before 
um, even though she is like this um, <laughs> established fusion. But um, Garnet as a fusion, I you're you're right that the whole like codependent thing has been interpreted as a problem because the first time that we we, we spend the whole first season with Garnet thinking um, that she's one person. I mean, unless you were one of the people that theorized she might be a fusion, which, you know, looking back, you're kind of like, of course she was because she had two gemstones and that's what that means. But we weren't, we were given not a full history of the gems. A lot of the stuff that we didn't know that was a surprise, uh, that was painted as a revelation was only because we did not have all of the information. And so, I mean, Garnet as, as a, as a fusion, she was together all the time because her components were in love and wanted to live as one person. And that for humans, that would be pretty toxic actually, if you could not survive without your significant other, um, like that you, you don't exist or you're always in crisis. Um, and so when we first meet her components and they're desperately trying to get back to each other, it's kind of like, um, oh, they're that's sweet that they're so in love, but it's also like almost panicked. Like I have to get back. I have, you know, she's all, she's all alone. I have to, I have to find her. Um, yeah, I gotta, I gotta admit, I'm, uh, I did not foresee the, the, uh, foreshadowing that, uh, Garnet was a fusion. <laughs> you know, I, I remember talking to you about this because I think you watched the episodes out of order and yeah. you saw an episode called Keystone Motel, where she mm-hmm. fall, she fell asleep. She Why did I say fall asleep? She fell apart um, <laughs> into two two people, and you hadn't seen Jailbreak yet. You hadn't seen the revelation. So you're like, I didn't know she was two people. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> she just fell apart, and she's these two little people. <laughs> yeah, that was a problem that, that uh, we now know in hindsight that the Cartoon Network wanted a more episodic show, and yeah. it was more episodic when they were on their hiatuses, and they just were showing a lot of uh, reruns or showing a lot of uh, yes uh, episodes uh, back to back, and uh, that that really threw me out of order. Uh, <laughs> watch when those would come on, so I just kind of waited for them to to be on uh, on demand services or mm-hmm. anything, so I could watch them in order because otherwise it was like this was a show that just did not make sense out of order (laughs) yeah i think you're right the cartoon network was uh they they didn't really quite understand what they had and they're they're like haha funny cartoon we can show it in any order yeah Um, well you know i i gotta be honest that uh, i'm I'm jealous of current kids growing up uh with all these positive representations of queerness and child media uh, especially uh starting with obviously as we're showing with uh steven universe and the shows in its wake like she-ra and uh you know there's not non-binary representation isn't even common in media for adults yeah, we had it with the gems and with Sadie's partner, and uh, you know, to say this show was groundbreaking is an understatement. Yeah, I I consider this show uh, the good place uh, for kids, and that was a very uh, brilliant show that wove uh, philosophy 
and all this, all of that into, into, a, into the sitcom format. And, uh, you know, for an action show, you know, this focused on complex emotions and feelings and how they drove the plot while using them, especially empathy, especially uh, Stephen's empathy that he had in, in, uh, in excess and, and surplus to resolve the mm. conflicts, which I found uh, quite remarkable. And I thought that that was very Doctor Who in the way that, that nonviolence or humanism and emotion was used to solve the crisis. And Rebecca Sugar consulted child psychologists uh, for accuracy, especially uh, for the movie and how to deal with that kind of toxicity and with bullying. And, you know, the show focused on very deep subjects for a child's cartoon. You had identity, found family, love, mm-hmm. growing up, intergenerational trauma within mm-hmm. the family of the diamonds and, and, and everybody. Yeah. And you had the uh, war, imperialism, and uh, you had the rigid hierarchy, as we mentioned, of, of the uh, society of the gems versus the individuality, which they were able to find on Earth, which was very interesting. And, uh, you know, later on, we have friends moving on, which is something we all go through as we get older and get through high school. And, you know, gender. And you had all of that wrapped up in the genre tropes of <laughs> superheroes, anime, kaiju, musicals, and the uh, morality plays. Oh, and God. that's very, very well uh, put together in a way where it was totally consistent. And uh, do you have any comments on on that level of, of a sophisticated shift in representation and kids' show narratives? Well, with Steven being the focus character, uh, you have to stick to his perspective. That's kind of the main conceit of the show is that everything we see is something that he sees and uh, we might not necessarily come to the same conclusions as he Mm. does, but um, he's always there. We're not getting everybody else's story unless he is there for it. So there is a huge amount of adult stuff happening around Steven and we can collect uh, snatches of it. We can sometimes if he overhears a conversation or sometimes if somebody talks to him like they think he's his mother and so he's getting an adult conversation, he's dealing with adult uh, history and people who think he's someone that he isn't talking to him like he is. Um, That means that we're going to end up with a child being exposed to a lot of complicated, mature adult stuff and, you know, kids who are in, say, abusive relationships or abusive families, um, things like that, they are sometimes forced to deal with those things when it's not appropriate. And um, so we're kind of seeing that what the effect of many of that those things are on somebody who is still developing and is Uh, experiencing a lot of trauma throughout his youth, as well as kind of being watched by creatures that don't really understand the the human concept of childhood. They don't understand really what a child is because they are never children. And they're thousands and thousands of years old too. Yeah. But you know, they, 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 pop out of the ground and they are ready to report for duty. So 
it's like they don't really understand the idea of developing from a less mature form. Although I would certainly say that they are capable of experiencing trauma as well. We definitely see a traumatized character in Pearl. She is such an interesting character. Pearl is... She she clearly has a lot of unprocessed trauma and a lot of oh, yeah. uh, she has a love relationship with the person who did it to her, you know. <laughs> so um, seeing her wrestle with that is is very it's very difficult for someone like Stephen, who, as you said, was is very empathetic. He wants to he wants to be there for her and comfort her and make her feel good. But sometimes she is, sometimes she is continuing to pass down some of those lessons that she has learned um, in her way of dealing with Steven. Yeah. And you can kind of see kind of a weird uh, dynamic that maybe is unspoken, but like kept there at a kid's level for a kid's show that maybe Pearl has kind of uh, gotten over her uh, jealousy of Greg and uh, has accepted Stephen at this point and wants to protect Stephen because Stephen is of Rose. But you also kind of see how uh, Rose didn't necessarily uh, 100% reciprocate on the romantic relationship to the degree that Pearl uh, was in love with with Rose. And there's always Mm -hmm. people always think that he rose is i mean yeah very uh they either doesn't think very much about other people or uh is very self-involved or whatever Mm -hmm. in some relations or in some ways and not Mm -hmm. thinking of the consequences and uh i think that was a very good decision that if we're for as far as we knew and as far as we knew about the relationship between Stephen and his mom that like his mom was going to not necessarily be some perfect character and that there was a lot of uh, ambiguity to motives and uh, behavior and, and how she treated other people. Yeah. And, uh, with, with, with Rose, I, I mean, and then with uh, how things went with Pearl, I mean, the, the episode where Pearl trains Connie to sword fight is uh, very disturbing. It is. Yeah, it's it's very much about I love this person and therefore I will sacrifice my entire self for them. And there's a lot of messages about self-worth and how, how like to truly love someone is to be willing to destroy yourself for them. And that's I mean it's very recognizable as a type of thing that a that a human being can also experience but there's this compounding factor that as a you know as a science fiction character like she is also of the gem type of pearls which are created specifically to serve these higher aristocratic mm-hmm. uh uh gemstone characters who are higher up in the hierarchy you know and that they physically have to obey them they can be ordered to obey unlike every other kind of gem so like she is literally enslaved which means that it's very difficult to see her relationship with uh the person that she was made for as authentic love even though i think 
I feel like it was. I feel like she did have true yeah, love I, for I, her at the same time as it could it would always be a problematic relationship because of the power dynamic. So I think that there was some reciprocation there from Rose, but only to the extent that she was capable of it because she had this very strange way of loving that it was, it was, uh, she didn't understand that Pearl kind of seemed like she wanted monogamy and Rose wanted to love everyone. And that meant something different to Pearl. (laughs) Yeah. I guess the show was kind of very quietly or using allegory to say that, you know, she was more of, of that kind of a person that kind of into those kinds of relationships of of uh, polyamory rather than monogamy and when she did choose to be more monogamous it was with a human and uh, that made Pearl very upset or at least she was still willing to still be in the relationship with Pearl but Pearl wanted the monogamy and there was a hint that maybe Rose had fallen in love with other people over the over the millennia. We're going to touch on this later, but I think it's also just that Rose is just very naive. You know, she's a very sheltered person. So she begins to see the problems with the society she comes from, but she's so much a product of it and doesn't really have the fully developed sense of like just empathy and how to how to sort of care for other people because she's been sort of so sort of coddled and cared for her entire life kind of thing. So I think that's that's another part of it, is that she's just very emotionally immature, really. It's difficult, yeah. It's difficult to understand her perspective, because she definitely, the more you learn about her, the more you realize how immature she was, even though she's a 20,000-year-old being, which makes you think that either it's something in her nature, or it is that she thinks it's in her nature and she really can't change because she's said that she's said as much. She says, you know, when a gem is made, they're made for a reason. And that gem is supposed to come out of the ground knowing what they're supposed to be. And then that's what they are forever. Um, And I think she really believes that and she wants to change. She has this idea of the type of all loving accepting person that she wants to be but that's more like it's an illusion it's it's who she pretends to be but she does not fundamentally understand love yeah because it's like coming to earth a lot of them are able to change or at least (laughs) other uh gems that join the crystal gems see earth as a place where they can have individuality and change uh from their programming and everything and steven definitely uses his his uh powers of empathy and everything to to help former enemies uh change to becoming allies in full uh, crystal gems by the end, like with uh, Paradox yes. and uh, yeah. Lapis. Yeah, there's definitely some change on their part, but Rose is, uh, she doesn't, she, she, I guess she thinks that it isn't really possible for them to change because of how they're, how they're made. Yeah, I guess another aspect of that, though, is obviously one of the ways she tried to redeem herself was by, by creating Stephen. And I think, you know, Stephen is, you know, Stephen is many of the things that, that Rose wasn't in terms of that he he care, he cares for other people. He, 
you know, almost to a fault, sacrifices himself uh, for for other people, uh, you know, to the point where he has to be taught to actually take care of himself. So in a way, even though Rose doesn't really, she doesn't exactly redeem herself in her own lifetime, she does, you know, by creating Stephen, I think Stephen is like her her redemption. That's kind of how how I take it in part. She was never going to really live up to the idea of who Rose Quartz was in her head. Like she, this was ultimately a persona that she wanted everyone to see her as. And what's really interesting also about her relationship with Pearl is that Pearl apparently was not in love with her when she was diamond royalty. And, and yeah, that's what we, uh, that we're kind of burying the lead there that, uh, over the course of the series is that, uh, Rose turned out to be Pink Diamond and uh, faked the killing of Pink Diamond yes. to do the war uh, to, to save the Earth after she was given the Earth after begging uh, the other diamonds for it. <laughs> and she, living on Earth, she decided it was worth saving. So she and Pearl faked the killing of Pink Diamond by Rose Quartz, who was the same person, and uh, started this uh, thousands of year war, thousand year war. But yeah, I mean, what do you what do you think with that? Okay, so she's gone through several reincarnations here, different changes, and it's like like we were, like with Stephen. Okay, she kind of redeems herself in a way in that uh, maybe she saw how humans were and she figured that. To the degree that uh, maybe she would be Stephen or that Stephen was a separate, you know, person carrying on, you know, some bit of her, that he was actually able to uh, bring the imperialism to an end and bring the, the other diamonds together in a way that maybe uh, Pink Diamond or Rose Quartz couldn't. She had a history of running away from her problems and from anything that was conflict and Stephen, you know, making Stephen was kind of the ultimate manifestation of that is she's just like hated <laughs> her throne in a very final way. And I don't know that she knew for a fact that she, that was going to happen, but either way, she chose to do it and she wanted to, she wanted to have a human child and somehow be, be part of that, I guess. But she is not there anymore. Stephen is Stephen. Well, what do you think about her? Causing this war and all the deaths that that caused and caused the 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 diamonds to to fracture and and corrupt all the others and uh, the number she did on Spinel and her old pearl. Goodness, it's just incredible how much destruction she was able to uh, <laughs> cause. In a lot of it was being naive, kind of like what we were talking about. She just thinks that uh, at first when she was given the earth and she realized that gem occupation there would kill all organic creatures and destroy the planet for any other purposes besides the use of the land for the gem race, you know, she decided she didn't want that. She didn't want the planet if that's what was going to happen on earth, you know, so she figured, oh, well, I'll just pretend to be this warrior turned against her own kind and it'll scare them away and they'll leave. <laughs> it's like, no, they won't. Yeah. <laughs> They're the diamonds. So, you know, she, none of her plans really worked. Um, despite that though, the ideas she was stirring up in other gems were real. They, yeah. that was the real cause. And you have very, 
passionate crystal gem members who cared so much about like trying bismuth, to yeah. free. Uh, did you say bismuth? Yeah. Bismuth is, yeah, like literally and figuratively like the, the, the flag bearer here, <laughs> you know, bismuth was done dirty by pink diamond slash rose quartz, you know, and she was, she was right. She was right that ultimately when a, a force like the diamonds is threatening the rest of the race, like, you know, you'll do what I say or you'll die. Sometimes when solutions like the ones Stephen wanted do not work, you do have to, um, you do have yeah. to get violent. I, I'm, both, I'm of both minds on that, uh, yeah. that invention she created. On the, on, on the one hand, I thought it would have uh, made, made the war far worse and made their side far worse, especially if it would have been found out that she turned out to be pink. And I, I, you know, I mean, the diamonds were, were willing to do that anyway. And then yes. they had their own machine, you know, they had their own, uh, you know, device that did that to everybody else that they were willing to smash everybody, but it ultimately, oh, yeah. it, it, you know, everybody survived, uh, corrupted, but, uh, I don't know. I think that would end it up with the the end of all crystal gems, or all gems as a as a species or whatever. If yeah. if if uh, Bismuth's device had gone into uh, production as a weapon, because I don't, I would see the other side just doing the same thing, reverse engineering it, and then you have two sides with with the same kind of weapon, uh, just completely destroying each other till there's nothing left and doing it on our planet. Yeah, I don't I don't see the solution there. Yeah, I mean the problem is that it is always complicated. Nobody wants to say, well the answer is you just have to bring out the guillotine and kill the king. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes yeah. that is what has ultimately been what made a revolution successful. Mm-hmm. Stephen was, he was successful in his revolution, partly because he had a relationship with the diamonds as part of their family, as they understood it. He was only allowed to get away with what he got away with because he leaned on that and he didn't want it. He never asked for it, but they weren't going to murder him. They weren't going to kill him because he represented their long lost family member. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that he, I think that he knew that. I don't think that he forgave them, but I mm-hmm. do think that he understood they controlled the whole world, and there was n- not really another option besides getting on shaky good terms with them. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of feel like, on the one hand, I felt like he should have been more of a freedom fighter and, and gone to war against them, like you know, his mom did, but, but it's like, when I looked at how he was able to collapse their empire, at least in a way that gave independence back to the original, uh, species on their own planets. And they were kind of, uh, fixing things in a way that we just don't see with other empires. It was just kind of like, uh, take your wins, you know, <laughs> um, and don't, yeah. don't let them start thinking bad things again, you know, because yeah. it was very good that he was able to get white diamond and them all to, to start thinking differently and being compassionate. Like, Hey, what, what if I wasn't a tyrant? <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, well, you know, they're busy. They're dictators. Like they, they straight up say stuff like that. Stephen knows yeah. that they're not good 
good guys. Like they're just, and even when they become better, at least when they, when they stop murdering all, you know, other gems just for stepping out of line or making their lives miserable and, you know, making them spend all of their very, very long lives doing these terrible things, just having to go on missions and having to be part of the wall and stuff like yeah. that. Well, what, what do you think it means for, you know, for Stephen now finally knowing this history? Because, I mean, we, we, we see that uh, Stephen is later seeing a therapist in, in future. Uh, yeah, he is. Thank goodness. I mean, it's like, what, what does Stephen do to, to process this information as a child? Yeah, yeah. I think for a long time, um, he was getting a lot of conflicting messages because he grew up being told that Rose was this amazing, wonderful person, and that's who she was to those people. And the more that he learned about her, the more he was confused about who she even was and who did that make him. And for a good chunk of the show, he was worried that he was her. And that he therefore was responsible for everything that she had done. So that's part of what drove him to try to fix all of her mistakes is that in a way he felt that they were his mistakes or at least his responsibility to fix. So then it turns out that he has to accept that it's so much bigger and so much older than anything that any human could reasonably process. And that uh, around the time of the movie, which is when Spinell came in as a character and Spinell turns out to be this sort of jester character that was was friends with his mother and she left her in a garden for 5,000 years and just forgot about it. Damn, damn. And (laughs) she's just left standing there thinking that her, her diamond is coming back and it turned out she just never, ever did. And, you know, that was acceptable losses to Pink Diamond. She's just like, well, I guess that's over. Like she probably didn't really think about it. You know, she didn't go back to help any of the people that were stuck in this space zoo that were kidnapped from Earth thousands of years ago. That's true. Um, She just figured, you know, I mean, you do have to do that in a war sometimes. You have to be like, well, this, what we already have is, is pretty hard won. I don't have the means to correct any of these other mistakes, but you know, she never talked about him. She never discussed these things. And I think that we do see, even though she was the source of a lot of the trauma that was visited on those who served her, she was also a traumatized person. That's really a good point and that the show brings across and that even even the other diamonds have that problem too in a kind of a traumatized mother traumatizing her daughter yes. with forcing perfection upon her which is very familiar to a lot of people and uh oh yeah i mean they literally would send her to her room (laughs) yeah (laughs) and like leave her there in the dark for who knows how long yeah, it was probably for who knows how their their relative time scales work. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if she like go go up to your room for like uh, a century. You know, <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know what the situation is either. Although I'm a little confused about their family structure because it was never um, clarified. And some people, you know, they they like to do romantic shipping and stuff like that. So they'll mm-hmm. they'll be like, oh, I like, I like blue diamond and yellow diamond as girlfriends, but I kind of see them more like they're um, sort of in a a family relationship, which, Mm -hmm. you know, 
you can't really put human concepts on them exactly. So mm-hmm. I don't know. They just really definitely seemed like a dysfunctional family where White Diamond acted like the maybe the the grandmother or mother and yellow and blue diamond were sort of like the same status that they yeah. were the older sisters while pink was the baby well in a way it was kind of showing dysfunctional was dysfunction is universal you know they didn't have yes. to necessarily be blood relatives as crystal beings but yes. they were uh, as emotional beings and intellectual beings they were acting out certain types of dysfunction upon each other that we would recognize. Yeah, it is definitely like a lot of it is textbook, but the art book that came out after the show ended called End of an Era does have some like a, a few of the timelines that we weren't allowed to see before. And some of it is still redacted, but uh, it looks like they're, at least in this, they were implying that the diamonds are all the same age. Hmm. And I'm not sure if that's true. I don't know if that's what they would have finally put down to us if they had been allowed to tell the the diamonds origin and stuff. But there's a timeline that shows the diamonds appearing 20,000 years ago, and they're all at the same place as if they all came out at the same time. Um, yeah, that's not a very long or very old civilization unless they're just the current regime. Right. It's not. I mean, if if gems have only existed for 20,000 years as a race, they're very young, but they're also that's also very old for an individual who has lived that entire time. And they're extremely advanced to just have these uh, hard light bodies uh, coming out of their crystals. I mean, that's and being into intelligent beings and sentient, sapient uh crystals uh yeah i think we're missing something in the story there you know i kind of i kind of feel like they're like transformers or something they have some kind of progenitor race that that created them or something i I would like to know and it would it would be cool if eventually this was revealed but uh rebecca sugar did say that there were some early plans about whether some of the episodes of steven universe future the epilogue series was would be able to go into the sort of almost mythological slash religious origins of the, of the diamonds. Yeah. And that's what she implied. It was, it was almost like a, a an old legend of where they came from that, oh, okay. that Steven was going to get to find out, but they just, they, they didn't have very long to focus on any one storyline for 20 episodes and they really just wanted to deal with Steven processing everything that happened to him in the original series. In the movie, we've fast forwarded two years from the end of season five and he's 16 years old. Steven Universe is um, an older teenager now. And he's the way, because you brought up Spinel earlier, that yeah. he, this is kind of the first time that we see him deal with someone less empathetically he is still very empathetic to to her for someone who tried to murder his entire race and kill his friends but and he still like faced her alone when he didn't have his powers under control and stuff because of a being hit with a rejuvenator thing that she hit him with but Mm -hmm. um yeah this is the steven with a neck era for those neck era indeed he now has a neck but a lot of people are like (laughs) going on with steven why isn't he like giving her a hug and trying to be her friend and all of this and i feel like he's he's this is the finally the first time he faces a villain who doesn't think he's pink diamond or or rose quartz and 
the person knows, she knows that this is not the person that she was mad at or who wronged her, but she still wanted to take her anger out on him. And that he reacted to that a little differently. Like he's finally realized and probably processed a little bit that Mm -hmm. he is not responsible for his mother's crimes and he still cares. He still wants her to be okay. He tells her you deserve a better friend, but he doesn't say, and I'll be that friend because that would have been him at age 14. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That he's, he's always uh, giving too much of himself. Why don't you talk to each other? Why don't you talk to each other? Just give it a try. Why don't you talk about what happened? I know you're trying to avoid it, but I don't know why. You might not believe it. You might not believe it, but you got a lot in common. You really do. You both love me and I love both of you. I know you both need it. I know you both need it. Ivy performing both of you from Steven Universe to wrap up the first half of our Steven Universe retrospective. For the second half, tune in next Saturday for more obsessive Steven Universe scrutiny, if that's your sort of thing. Then for the remaining two Saturdays of Pride Month, we're releasing an episode reviewing the work of plus-size gay Latino actor Harvey Guillen, star of vampire sitcom What We Do in the Shadows. And finally, a queer ultra-left sampler for the last weekend of Pride, which is also the anniversary of the Stonewall Riot.